Writer and domestic artist Kate Lebo isn't entirely leaving her pie lady days behind. While pie is delicious, she tackles the offbeat, the challenging, the difficult fruit. Arguments for the tart, tender, and unruly with recipes. I'm your huckleberry. Okay, maybe not that huckleberry. But you learn the stories of these huckleberries. And Osage Orange. Thimbleberry. And everyone's favorite? Durian. More than a cookbook with recipes, Difficult Fruit is a memoir interspersed with medical facts, cultural information, and takes food writing to a whole new level. So the Book of Difficult Fruit is an A to Z of essays that use unusual or unruly fruit to tell stories where what nurtures us and what harms us are entangled. Longtime friend and fellow writer Sharma Shields advocated for this book as it hit the shelves. And we are thrilled to have her here in conversation with Kate Lebo on the virtual Northwest Passages stage. Knowledge that right over our heads, there should be a link to Auntie's where you can buy this book and support this wonderful local author and our awesome uh, local independent bookstore. So do pick up the book. It's absolutely wonderful. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm so good. How are <laughs> so you? So nice to be in person. With I know. You. We're vaccinated. We, we should are. explain. We are fully vaccinated. Yeah, this, is, this is the privilege of the vaccinated is yeah. to sit across from each other to talk about books. Yay. Again. I know. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, uh, I've already apologized to Kate in advance that I might be really uh, chatty. Really chatty He's tonight. You've seen no one for the last year. And a I've half. seen no one I've at all. No I haven't left the house. Um, and I also just really am excited to share this book with everybody. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful. Um, so as the introduction mentioned, this is not your first time writing about fruit. True. Um, you have uh, many lauded titles, but two of them are uh, Pie School, Lessons in Fruit, Flower, and Batter, and The Commonplace Book of Pie, which is a hybrid poetry and recipe collection. Um, and you've also edited with Sam uh, Pie and Whiskey, the anthology, which is uh, tied in with maybe the most raucous and exciting and maybe the best attended literary event I've ever been to. Definitely. In the, the entire best country. Best attended. Be definitely. Um, and just so much fun. Such a great event. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm curious, though, the fruit in this book is very singular, the way that you've tackled it, and almost um, experimental in the way that you've approached it. And I'm curious um, about what prompted you to write about uh, the fruit in this book, maybe what was the first fruit that came to mind, and then what prompted um, the theme of difficulty. Oh, sure. Well, I think that the, the idea started to take root there's so many puns I can use. <laughs> that will be the first one. Um, when I was getting my poetry degree at the University of Washington, my um, office mate, Catherine Ulinson, who's another great poet, brought a sack of quince to school one day, and I had never seen quince before. I'd heard the word. I don't know that I have either. Yeah, and, and, and when I Googled, Googled it, it quince came up <laughs> instead. Right. Okay. The word, the Spanish word for 15th. They were beautiful. They were this hard yellow with a with a fuzzy gray um, fuzz on top of it. They smelled amazing. 
Um, and I thought that I could do like I do with other fruit and just pick it up and, and eat it. So I did that and I found very quickly how foolish <laughs> that action was. Because raw quince is incredibly astringent, it's incredibly sour, it's incredibly hard. I felt like my teeth were gonna break. Um, and that bite, the, the contrast between how it smelled and how it looked with the difficulty of that bite made me realize how circumscribed and limited my idea of fruit was. It really had just been shaped by what I could find at the grocery store or find at a farm, you know, both, both of which, um, the selection in the, both of those places are gonna be determined mostly by what, what sells. Yeah. And what mostly sells is beautiful, sweet fruit that can be shipped. Yeah. Now, and quince doesn't fit that profile at all. To, mm. to be delicious, it has to be cooked. So yeah. that you know made me start to wonder, what else am I missing? Um, I also really loved, once I did some more research into quince, finding out that it is the um, possibly the biblical fruit of knowledge, which made me start thinking about this uh, difficulty as a metaphor, perhaps. I mean, yeah. doesn't it make sense that a fruit that smells super delicious and looks amazing, if it is the fruit of knowledge, would taste so hard? Yes. Um, yeah. Be so hard yeah. to stomach. So that's where it started. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, when I was reading the book, there were times where I would find myself salivating. Um, and it wasn't just when I was reading about the sweet tasting fruits. You have a way with words that even when I was reading about something that was perhaps uh, not as tasty, I would also be having this almost um, visceral experience with That's it. Great. Can you talk about how you approached writing those? And, sure. Um, well, I was thinking a lot about uh, what I love about food writing and what I don't love about food writing. Or, no, maybe I should put it this way. What I love about food writing and then the limits of, of food writing as I found them when I was trying to write about food and I was reading about food. And that is that food writing is so good at making something sound delicious. Um, it is less good at uh, dealing with unpalatability. Um, yeah. And I mean that in, in, I'm thinking of food memoirs here in particular, that's where that becomes important. I think at the newspaper, it totally makes sense to get people excited about the food. You don't need to dwell on the un unpalatability of, of um, certain, certain foods. But in memoir um, and in any kind of um, literary venture, I think you're trying to reach for what you're not supposed to say or what you can't say, uh, what might be transgressive. Um, and to do that, you kind of have to leave a certain amount of palatability behind. Um, I think there's also a palatability of the, the food writing um, uh, uh, narrator. Um, I'm thinking of different different memoirs I read about 10 years ago, um, where it was very, it was apparent that the narrator um, must be liked and that the subject had to be dealt with in a likable way. Right. Which is fine, but I was really interested in like, how do I explore, you know, have have a wider range of possibility within the food writing that I'm doing. Um, and because it's in a book, I can make the rules. You know, I'm not yep. writing for the newspaper, yep. I'm not writing for a magazine. I can, I can kind of take the genre conventions um, and use them and subvert them and play with them as much as I want. Yeah, I love that because you really do subvert those, that notion of likability within the book because you're able to discuss relationships here. Um, the book is so much not just about fruit, but also about what's difficult with our bodies and what's difficult with um, our relationships with those that that should be the sweetest relationships, and yet sometimes have that stink always. to them. Have always, that stink. Yeah, right? I shouldn't say sometimes. There's always yeah, the, always. the light yeah. in the dark. Yeah. And 
how do we, I mean, yeah, one of my, my concerns in this book was how to understand particularly the women in my life and kind of in their full expression of um, sweetness and sourness. Yeah. To use another pun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many. But then also then the opportunity of thinking about food that way is super fun because how do you expand kind of your own idea of, of what's delicious, what's edible, unless you confront what you don't think is delicious and what you don't think is edible. So that comes up in Durian, for example, yeah. the chapter yeah. on Durian. Well, I love this because it kind of touches on um, this uh, depth I had that I saw in this book um, and the many roles I feel like you were playing in order to execute a book um, of this, I think, ambition and magnitude and, and all of the different levels that it engages us at as a reader. Um, so you talk in the chapter about kiwi fruit. Uh, you describe your mother's work ethic, this work ethic um, that you see as this great example that she's able to share her passion with her work and that you can witness that as a child. And I loved that because sometimes I feel like I'm shutting my children out when I'm engaged too much in my writing or something. And I'll carry a sort of guilt about that with me. And right. it was just so amazing to think for the first time, maybe it's it's great for them to see me dedicated to something. So thank you for that, first yeah. of all. That's just a little aside. But, um, but uh, you went on to say, I loved her work the way I loved her fruit. I loved the fact of them, how I could take for granted that my mother loved her job and was good at it. How in our house, ambition and caretaking were often the same thing. And the first time I read the book of Difficult Fruit, and I've read it twice now, um, both times, I loved it, uh, I came and came across this passage. I marked it immediately because I'd already been marveling over the feet of this and that um, I felt almost like there was this entire army of yous of Kate's working on this book. Um, you have like uh, the scholar and the uh, intellectual, I think, who has these incredible literary illusions within it that I just ate up. Um, and you have um, the uh, historical knowledge, so Kate as researcher, and you have these beautifully written recipes that must have been so arduous in their process. Um, you know, so you're the seasoned chef and foodie and researcher too, an inventor almost. Um, so I know as a writer that these books are, what we finally see as the, the final product is just the tip of this enormous iceberg. Um, and so I just loved that you had this great reflection of your mom's work ethic within the book. And so I just wanted to talk about your writing process with this and how you handled all of these distinct entities as you were writing oh, sure. and all these different roles, because they seem so varied to me in this really incredible way. Sure, thanks. That's a great question. I mean, there's two ways I think about it. And one is a role uh, that you didn't name, which is that of the amateur. That became oh, yeah. really, having that as my stance became really important to me um, as I was getting into the book, in part just because I was really insecure in terms of, um, I was worried about just writing a book that merely fulfilled the book proposal. Yeah, I was worried yeah. about, well, which is another way of saying, I was worried about writing a bad book. I was worried about, I was worried about, um, you know, getting things wrong. Yeah. You know, so much of the of um, what I wrote is based on a lots of different kinds of research, um, and it was interesting to me and really important to me to try to combine 
all the different ways of knowing that that became available to me through these different kinds of research. So what I mean by that is I was going to the library at Eastern. I was using um, WSU's uh, library resources. I was using um, library resources at the University of Washington. But I was also going to the grocery store in Spokane, going out into the forest in the surrounding yeah. area, getting the fruit, having an experience with it. That's a kind of research, Yes. right? Yeah. I was talking to people. Um, who could tell me more about it. I was making mistakes all of the time. <laughs> and I always love that um, in any book where I get to see the writers uh, having to confront what they thought was true and what is actually true. Um, so I tried to, I guess, embrace that as, as a kind of mode of writing, knowing yeah. that the thing that got me interested in each of these fruits probably would in some way turn out to be false. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Did you have a fruit that really took you by surprise that you thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to write about this, and then just completely became interested in it, or maybe the opposite? You know, <laughs> well, it was funny because there were plenty of fruits that I would try to write about and then just couldn't make any headway, because even if there was something interesting about them, like mulberries or laquats, or I mean, I could, or, or um, oysters, for example, so many good yeah. stories to tell about all of these fruits. Just sometimes I didn't have anything to say and I couldn't figure out why. So hmm. I can't tell you why those didn't exactly make it into the book. But I think um, when I was doing research and when I was starting to write each chapter, if I could, if I found myself um, finding coincidences within my experience and the research or finding kind of repeating images yeah. that I could use, um, then things, then things got interesting, Yeah, I guess. I but, love the Medler chapter with all of its Shakespeare allusions. And, um, I had just to talk such to Tony Flynn yeah. about that from, <laughs> from Men in Charge because I actually, I don't know Shakespeare all that well. Um, so that's where that's a good example of where I'm faking some of my authority. Yeah. But also anyone can go read Shakespeare, and anyone can go use all sorts of great online resources to help you figure out what is he talking about. Yeah. Um, and I loved thinking about Shakespeare in that um, chapter also as this other language that I didn't quite know yet, which is how I felt about recognizing fruit in my neighborhood. Um, it's how I felt about uh, you know recognizing an elderberry tree, for example. Like they we're surrounded by them, or an elder tree is what I, or elder bush, excuse me, is what I should say. It's an elder bush, which I came to understand. Um, I'd never considered them before, never thought yeah. about them before. Yeah. Someone pointed them out to me a couple years ago, and then I started seeing them everywhere, and it astounded me that there was so much food, even just within my urban neighborhood. But yeah. then also when you you know drive out in Spokane, and that started to feel like a kind of, a way of reading, I guess, and a kind of language that I was learning. Well, I think it's a gift that you give the reader in this book, too, because I'm looking around now with wiser eyes about what's around us. I mean, I, I, it's funny because a lot of my research so far regarding the book has been Googling, but I do, I would love to do, say, a walking tour of this book oh, sure. in a neighborhood or that something would be really one day. fun. It'd be so cool, yeah. Um, anyway, that would I be I found some thimbleberries today on my walk. Oh, with wonderful. My oh, where? They are, well, I can't tell you because oh, okay. then you will pick them. <laughs> well, I have, I, I, the thimbleberry chapter, I have many, many favorites in this book, but the thimbleberry chapter is one of my favorites because. And I think I sent you a picture last summer because my daughter, when I was reading it, my daughter had just taken a walk from my parents' lake cabin um, on Kilroy Bay on Lake Ponderay. And there's a little dirt road there. You can only access this area by boat most of the year. And so there's like little UTV roads, forestry roads, but that's about it. And um, 
she called it Thimbleberry Lane, and she would just go there just to eat, and then she'd be like, I'm going to go eat some thimbleberries, and then I'll come back later, and when she came back, I was like, hey, uh, there's a recipe in this book for thimbleberry (laughs) toilet paper, so now you kids know, and I, and I wasn't even saying it really in a jokey way, because that is very vital information for us to have in the woods sometimes, you know, so it was just so, so cool, and I was like, of course, thimbleberries, this fruit I've always seen is so... Um, I don't know, gentle and sort of prolific up there. But but what was so cool is I had never thought about it being so wild that it really can't be planted elsewhere. Yeah, or and that or marketed it can't be, or sold. Yeah, and that they, they do just give one little berry at a time. Yeah. And I'd never noticed that until I read your chapter. Right, so much about how we think about fruit really has to do with our appetite, our ease at getting it yeah right? and we've yeah. read so many i mean apple trees used to just fruit every other year uh, but that's not going to work for the apple industry and that's fine that yeah. we've you know changed we've we've tailored the, i think that's fine we've tailored these plants to suit our needs i mean that also suits the plants it makes us propagate them more and more and more yeah uh, we are in a in a symbiotic relationship with fruit it's yeah. it's like a primary way that animals and plants um overlap that's cool right yeah yeah. But yeah, but the thimbleberry is such a great example of a fruit that is kind of there on its own terms, cannot, yep. has not been domesticated, does not deliver um, like a marketable or even like a marketable crop or even enough of a crop that you can make a pie with it. Yeah, there's not enough. You just I mean, have to eat it when you we, find we it. We love them because we walk by and we just pop one yeah. in our mouth at a time. And um, anyway, I gained so much knowledge about about that and how and you're right it just it suits our needs as we walk around very casually in the forest and whatnot but um, I had never tried to go out and like pick a bucket of them before and never had thought to do that and so it was just so cool to gain that knowledge reading the chapter. The the relationship with that what what happens with rarity with thimbleberries rarity is really interesting too right so it's something when you encounter it generally it's free Um, it's got this kind of serendipitous generous uh, feeling um, but then, like that sh- used to show up on a um, as a dessert at the Willows Inn. I don't know if it does anymore. I haven't hmm. been there, and they've had some some scandal recently. I guess it oh. turns out that something along the lines of like all their their fancy food is um, that they've been gathering just from Lummy Island is really just from Costco. Oh. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> I don't really know. I shouldn't say that because I don't know exactly what the story is. But I am it's not, not even. What you, it's I'm not even. Not what they've been marketing. But terrible. they would serve this, um, I, and I heard this from multiple people who were who were able to go to the Willows. Um, they would serve just thimbleberries straight as dessert, oh, um, which is lovely. the right way to serve them, right? But of yeah. course, I mean, this is a a luxury dining experience uh, that only a few people can afford and how weird for anyone who has just encountered them as you know a childhood food someone like Maya Jules Zeller you know another great local poet had talked to me about this she would just go pick them you know on childhood afternoons and it was you wouldn't call it foraging we just call it eating right so foraging starts to signal our relationship to to food and to fruit and all that and I don't know Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, another, another, um, I think, theme that recurs in the book, too, um, and that we immediately see right in the first chapter with the um, Aronia. And is it Aronia? Or Aronia? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Aronia. Yeah, people don't really maybe. talk about it, so I, can, I actually haven't <laughs> yeah, heard it out loud cherry. all that much. I've, yeah. I've heard it pronounced Aronia. Okay, Aronia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that chapter immediately roots us in ideas of health, mm-hmm. sickness, the body, um, the mutinies of the body and how we want to find 
uh, almost immediate cures for those mutinies. Um, and I, I know that you talk about Susan Sontag in the book, um, and I was thinking about her quote, illness is the night side of life, a more onerous citizenship. Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. Um, I love that quote of hers. Um, and part of being alive and living in a body is experiencing all of these ways that our body entropies and it breaks down. And I think you write about many of many different examples of that. We have gout, uh, ulcerative colitis. Uh, there's cancer in the book in multiple places. Um, migraines, uh, which I also have issues with. Um, and this connects in just such interesting ways with you know what we were talking about with the sweetness and then what I keep thinking of is the stink because I'm that's about as eloquent as I'm <laughs> gonna get right now but um, it's uh, you know so cool to think of it in terms of the fruit too the cherry that has this wonderful sweetness and then also has poison within it and how we carry all of these things within ourselves um, anyway so uh, I had a question connected to that I have to look at it <laughs> oh can you talk about the ways health and mortality helped shape your narrative oh, sure <laughs> Gosh, you know, and I think I, I got, so food has always been, had a relationship with medicine for me because of the ways um, my mother, who suffers from um, migraines and has, you know, my entire life um, and before I was born, uh, the way that she would use food as a way to try to heal herself. Mm -hmm. And I would watch it work for a while and then it would, it would stop working. And, you know, she's, her, so, so that taught me that food is both, um, a pleasure, a necessity, a medicine, but not necessarily a medicine to be depended on. So I both very much believe that food will heal me and have complete doubt yep. in, its, in, in that very same thing. Yeah, and you talk about the placebo effect yeah. um, and the power of it. And, yeah. and I like that you don't, you don't shirk that concept. You, were, you're, you actually hold it up. It's, it's, the placebo effect is a great thing. It's right. actually worth it. And I think it's, it's, I mean, and I was thinking about the placebo effect also in terms of the, the metaphors we use to identify what's going to make us well. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, um, for me, that's, that's, that's food. Um, and that in Aronia, I'm talking about antioxidants in particular in the way that Aronia supposedly yeah. have you know, a high uh, uh, portion of antioxidants. And so we can take them and kind of feel like we're ingesting a pill. I mean, and they look pill-like and they also look like they they're so so dark their juice is so dark that that also looks like lifeblood yeah. which really got me to thinking about the ways that like I know that this pill isn't magic but it looks magic and yeah. if I I do believe that that the ritual of ingesting something like that of paying of, of paying attention to my health will keep me healthy yes even yeah. if the antioxidant properties of these uh, fruits are a bunch of hooey yep yeah so it makes me uh, kind of salivate again. Thinking, thinking of that smoothie, it just sounds so good. It it's not like, that good. Yeah. It's really but not see, that I good. But like, see, I like a little yeah. bit of a nasty smoothie. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the worse it tastes, the better it is for you. Yeah. That's another way that I connect <laughs> health and food. Yeah. Right? And, it, and I, you know, it's funny because I, I think when we, around the time we met, uh, one of our first things we connected on was anti-inflammatory diets. Yeah. And I... I was so stringently sticking to mine for so long, and it was very much out of fear, yeah. I think, because I had the MS diagnosis, and I, I was like, I have to do everything in my power at every moment to make Try sure to this something. doesn't progress. Yeah, and, um, and I'm so glad I had that for 
all of the food, that I had something to do with it <laughs> and I had to do with food. But I, I have been so much lazier about it. And I was just thinking today as I was working on these questions that at some point uh, I'm going to ram up against a wall of fear again and then and start to, to really pay but attention. But fine. Yeah. Also, fine. if that yeah. works as a medicine yeah. for you, if that works as a way to... I don't yeah. have a modicum of control over our decaying bodies. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> you know, I was doing the same thing when I met you. I'd just been diagnosed with um, in, in, uh, ulcerative colitis. And yeah. thought also maybe that diet could yeah. heal me, and it, it didn't. But it, it gave me a sense of, of control. Well, I remember it being really comforting, like yeah. getting to talk to you about it. Because it was all a very new world for me, and I was trying my best. And it was just cool to see somebody else you know, trying their best too. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to try our best. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway, very cool. Um, one of the other things I thought I would mention here, um, speaking about some of our earliest conversations and, uh, when I first got to know you, um, uh, there was the work that was starting to be done with Spark Central oh, sure. uh, Inc. at that time, and you were one of the founding members of that, which was kind of founding uh, board Central, members yeah. mm -hmm. of, but not of Inc. Yeah, not yeah. of Inc. But of Spark. Yeah. Um, I inherited. And, I got to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think of you as one of the first, if not the very first, board members there, right? At Spark. At Spark. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I uh, also remember when you moved here from Seattle. Paul Constant writing about you and saying that what he loved about you is how much you always showed up for other writers in your community and that you were just a, a face that he would see frequently out and about and just um, warm and inviting. And um, I think you do something really brilliant in this book with bringing in members of our community here and talking about the work that they do. Um, I think of Leray Wiley, for example, right. Michael Maloney, you know, like yeah. these other people in our community. Maya. Maya. That's Sam. right. Yep, Sam's Sam. all over it. Sam Ligon, my husband. That's right. Yeah. And I love... He was always there to tell me a joke when I was stuck. So you'll know <laughs> I'm stuck in the book because Sam says something funny. Yeah. That's great. Uh -huh. I love that. But I just, I, I feel like community is a part of who you are and that you you do that beautifully in the book and I just wanted to say um, how cool I think that Thanks. is and, and ask what what you think community should look like and it, how much of a um, daily presence is that in your life as you're writing and whatnot. Well, it's changed so much because of COVID. Yes. I can't remember. Yes. What was it I like know. to be with people? <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's a strange question. Um, well, I think like getting to live in a place where it just feels like something's happening where I can, I mean, remember when you and me and Chelsea Martin were walking with our kids in Manitou and I had just had my baby, I think maybe, you know, he was, he was just a month or two old and we ran into, um, Blaine Crow and we <laughs> ran into Marianne. Um, and it just gave me this, and they were also walking their babies and <laughs> it was just all like writers and babies. Writers, yeah, right? It was yeah. just this like mom <laughs> Mom writers have spoken. <laughs> like, and, and I mean, I, it just made me think about it. When I lived in Seattle, it just seemed absolutely impossible to be an artist and have a family. And maybe I wouldn't feel that now. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't been there enough to know what, what the changes have been. But anyway, 10 years ago, it definitely felt totally impossible. Um, and it felt like a choice. Like, you can have one or the other. Um, it's been wonderful to be here and see this generation of women writing really cool, incredible work. Yeah. And also, you know, having their babies and raising their kids and doing both. But that yeah. they're, these things are not mutually exclusive in the city. Yep. Um, it's fantastic. And, and palling really around. 
really special. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Spokane Arts uh, supports supported me with a um, grant to pay for childcare, for that's example. Awesome. Like I can't believe yep. that's something you can write a grant yep. for, but in Spokane you can't. Yeah, and I'm so impressed so. with those grants too. I mean, they have I think really started changing the arts scene here yeah. in this powerful way. It's just so cool. Um, that money is time. Yeah. You get to write a book because of that time. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't have a yeah, so I don't have an answer to your question about what a community should look like. Well, I don't, I don't really know if know. that was my question. I yeah. think I was just more like, what does it mean to you? Which is very pageantry sort of question. <laughs> well, one of the points that I was I was thinking about, and one of the reasons that I, I did draw so much from um, local sources is I I want to feel rooted. Yeah. Wherever I am. Um, Sam is never getting me out of the house that we live in now. We're going to be there forever. Um, and I wanted the book to feel rooted, yeah. um, especially as I'm considering all the different ways, many different peoples, many different cultures, some of whom may have been in conflict with each other, might value the same food. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, people in our community appearing in the book has to do with that attempt to be rooted. But also the ways that I was trying to source things, source the fruit for the book as close to home as possible. Yes, yeah. we live in a time where you can just, I can just Google any fruit and probably have it shipped to me on ice, no problem. But that just felt like cheating. Yep. There was, I thought there would prop, there was something to be learned by trying to find durian, for example, in Spokane, or trying to find elderberries here, or trying to find gooseberries here. Yeah, that's true. I love that. And, yeah. and the search for those things, you know, creates a relationship within the book, but also have created relationships for me outside the book that continue. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. I love that. Um, well, you've published in a lot of different ways. You've published um, small chapbooks, and you've published now a book that has been lauded in Vogue and The Guardian and The New York Times. Um, and uh, how has it been uh, doing all of this in a pandemic and having your book out with one of the, the big... Uh, New York publishers now. Well, it's hard. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's 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 so strange to go from from seven years of trying to pretend like no one will ever read this book, so that I can actually write something, so I can have that privacy and that quietude, yeah. to then having it out in the world and in in these international channels. So I feel both isolated and overexposed, and um, excited, grateful, horrified. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've talked to you about it, but my, you know, I had a, a friend who was like, don't ever read your reviews. Not good, not bad. Definitely don't read the starred reviews on Amazon or Goodreads. Yeah. Stay away from it all and just keep Those working. Those people on Goodreads are mean. <laughs> oh, my oh, my God. I mean, yeah. Sometimes they're hilarious if you're in the right mood. True, but, um, true. But my favorite review of one of my books was, I weep for the trees that were sacrificed to make this book. <laughs> like, thanks, reader. Sacrificed. I see you. Oh, uh, yeah. It's okay. You don't, you, they don't have to like the book. Yeah. I just get it's to, true. You know, yeah, just, they don't. Yeah. It's the, you know, I'm very democratic about readership. I think people should choose what they want to read and hate Absolutely. what they want to read and don't let anybody rest. tell you what to read that's right you yeah. know that's right that's no true. and there's and that relationship of of the reader to the book is i mean i have it's none of my business they're having their time it's quiet i don't get to see it i had yeah. my time with my quiet time with the book and then they get their quiet time with the book yep so. that's right yep i know um i love that uh let's see the range of recipes 
is so awesome in this book. Some of them I already mentioned, the thimbleberry leaves, for example, is toilet paper. Uh, durian lip balm, which is talked about frequently. Uh, delicious huckleberry pie and a blackberry shrub that I would just like an entire picture of one evening, if possible. I might come over to your house and get that. that. Um, and did you have any rules for yourself when you were considering the recipes, like sure. so many ingredients or whatnot? Well, when I first pitched the book, I promised one recipe that was edible and one that was inedible. Oh, cool. Um, and then I tried to di dial that back and say I'm only going to do one recipe because I realized, like, oh, crap, I have promised a full-length cookbook and a full-length essay yeah, collection. Wow. Um, and my very smart editor, Jenna Johnson, was like, nope, you promised me two recipes. I want those two recipes. <laughs> she was so right. Um, because as I went about writing those recipes, and I did try to keep that balance of um, one, in, one inedible and one edible, or one edible and one um, medicinal, and what's medicinal is often also ed edible, yeah. so it blurs that line. Um, I tried to choose things that would serve as illustrations for each chapter. So each chapter, you know, turns the fruit that it's dealing with into a metaphor, uh, while yeah. it's also, you know, engaging in its, you know, history and physical characteristics. Um, and I like the way that the recipe that concludes each essay then brings the metaphor back down to earth and we're back to the real yeah. fruit. And we need I to do something movement. physical with it. Yeah. Recipes are so bossy. They're just, they're <laughs> one of the, these types of texts that expect you to do something, and you can do something. You can follow the directions and make the thing, which is totally, you know, the certainty of that um, is such a relief often when I'm trying to write a poem or trying to write an essay, right? yeah. where I often don't know yeah. what I'm doing. And oh, that's so cool. Well, I, I loved sometimes the recipes themselves were anecdotal in this really interesting way, and um, I loved reading them. You know, even though I've I have never been a huge cookbook reader or anything, but I think maybe I should do that now because I really did enjoy this so much. It was just so so fun. They're beautifully written, and um, yeah, I just really enjoyed those parts. Yeah, the recipes became this chance to include information about each fruit that didn't really fit in the essay. Yes, yeah. So in the way they became like footnotes or like B sides. Yeah. You know, I could kind Besides. of, they could take place, in, you know, at a different time or with a different character. Yeah. And they were related, but they weren't what came before. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun also to write recipes that are that are hard, hard, that are, and not necessarily hard, actually, but just a pain in the butt. Yeah. Like you'd have to be someone who really loves um, repetitive tasks like me um, <laughs> to be into making like persipan, for example, which is something I discovered when I was um, hanging out with Laura Lee Misterly at the Coolasaskit farm. She had she and her husband Rick had all these um, pits from apricot trees, and a bunch of us just were smashing the apricot pits open, taking the kernel out, wow. dro you know, dropping the the. Um, pit shards here and putting the kernel over there and then you have to roast it and then you have to slip off their skins wow. and then you have to do more stuff right so it was just this incredible group effort uh, that was that was super fun oh, because so it became it became kind of a social yeah um, it, it created this social fabric between at the time people who didn't really even know each other and there that is well. that kind of collective community of food happening yeah. you know that's so cool doing something that's you know almost like most people would consider ridiculous yeah but yeah. but to like get to it to remember that there's this this source of flavor that yeah. we're usually just throwing away yeah. I don't know beautiful ritual. I get a kick out of that so cool mm -hmm. um let's see what have I not asked you yet um uh oh this one's 
doozy. Okay, let's see. So I remember before my first novel came out. <laughs> I'm like the least, pro- least professional interviewer ever. Um, I remember before my first novel coming out feeling this sort of rising terror that my family was going to read it. Like yeah. somehow when I was writing it, I didn't realize that No, that's day, good. You need yeah. that denial. <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, as I got closer and closer to the publication date, uh, I think the panic was just rising for that. Um, and to my relief and surprise, uh, there were a lot of great conversations that came from it and astoundingly no arguments. Um, and so I, you know, of course, write fiction. So I can always hide behind some of the, like, very big wackiness of what I write, but you're writing memoir. And so I, I'm curious how the lead-up was to the publication date and if you felt similar kind of, uh, concerns as you were approaching and um, you know if any conversations have happened that's kind of a personal question so if you're not <laughs> into answering that you don't have to well but, definitely um, definitely yeah. that's that has been something that's that was on my mind and is on my mind but yeah. something that was important to me um, as a writer and um, as someone who wants to continue to have relationships with the people that they're writing about yeah. was to um, consult them as yeah. I was, oh, that's great. you know, yeah. after once I had a, a good enough finished draft, um, where I felt confident that this is close to to what I you know want to publish, um, when it when it was sensitive, I would pass it by family members or friends, um, and in some cases, I got to incorporate um, what they told me into yeah. the piece, which that's was fantastic. Powerful. Yeah, because it made the like that happens in in Juniper, for example, it makes the piece bigger. Um, it also tells the reader uh, that I got consent, which in that case, uh, with that story, because it's about um, a tr- uh, abortion, yeah. seemed particularly yeah. important with such a sensitive, such a sensitive topic. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with my family, you know, I um, had a long conversation with my folks um, about the parts that they were in, and um, it's it's so. I mean, one of the things that I was trying to figure out. Um, how to do was to give them, make them feel safe enough as they were reading the piece um, that they felt like they could give me what I had written. I really hoped that they would give me what I had yeah. written. If they had asked me to, you know, or for to change things, I would have changed things, you know, and I did change some things. Um, but yeah, it was important to me that they felt like they weren't completely out of control because they, they, but they were, I mean, I, I, this is my version of uh, family stories, um, and in a lot of cases, what that means is kind of just shrinking, um, you know, people I love who are very complex into just one particular part of themselves that fits in this essay, and that's got to be a weird feeling. Yeah, you know, and I appreciate that, and and I, yeah, I wanted just to give them a chance to talk to me about it before it was out in the world. And well, I love how complex everybody is mm-hmm. within the book, including. The narrator of the book, um, okay. which you know, I I just thought, <laughs> I mean, it, it just um, there's such movement in this on both like a, a human level, um, like there's such an arc to the entire book as on this which human maybe level. Because it took seven years to write, <laughs> right? Somebody asked me if I if I created that arc on purpose or you know purposely steered the you know the change. Oh in yeah, my life, and I was like, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> well, and let me check because I think Christy had mentioned a question, and I'll see if um, that question has showed up in my phone here. Um, How many rewrites? 
Yeah, somebody had asked how many rewrites. Oh, right. Um, did do you think it took? Right, and I and I, <laughs> I have I've completely lost count. Yeah. But then my other answer to that is writing is rewriting. Yeah. So yeah. you know, there's no way yeah. to count how many drafts. There were three major drafts. Yeah. Um, and this book was a mess up until the very end. Yeah. yeah. Which and it reminded me actually of baking for pie and whiskey. So when we make pie, you know pie for 300 people we'll have you know five people in the room with us me and Sam um, helping make the pie and and you have to make the crust and then you make the filling and then you roll the crust and then you've been in there's all these different steps that do not look like pie and it takes days right and it, they don't look like finished delicious pies until you know five minutes before they go into the oven yeah and you just kind of have to it's at some point when you're getting tired and it's almost time for pie and whiskey you have to be like this will be pie i promise you know i know it's just scattered in parts all over the kitchen but that's how it comes together wow awesome so the book was like that yes I did. like a pie yeah i, I think that's what i loved about the new york times uh, rave review of this book, but at the very end, she was like, "The book is like a pie." Or she said something like that. It was so great! I'll never escape that. I <laughs> You'll knew never that escape the pie. Years ago, that I would never escape it. And it's true. Oh well, yeah, just a pie lady. Well, I'm getting to the um, last question, so I just want to um, say again, thank you to aunties, and I'm pointing up here to the book. Go buy the book, everybody. Um, support your local authors and your local indie bookstores. Um, and I also want to thank Jesse and Christy and the Spokesman Review and Northwest Passages yeah. for having us. Awesome thank you, people. Jesse and Christy. Um, and my friend Kate for writing this beautiful book. Um, and my last question is just, uh, are you able to write it all right now? Are oh, you, and, and if you <laughs> what are, what is the project? Oh, man. You know, tell me what. I was able to, so, because I had a baby seven months ago. And he's adorable. And I was actually able to write even when he was an infant. But since the book has come out, my, my concentration is just scattered. So I have just yep. been, uh, I've not been writing. And I have been enjoying being with Sai and with Sam and just talking to people about this book. Yep. And once my, you know, all the pieces of me come back together and knit themselves together, I'm hoping um, I will be. Uh, doing the foodway survey for the Washington Center for Cultural Traditions. Oh, it's going to cool. be focused around um, Spokane foodways. Awesome. So I'm doing. I've been doing different interviews um, with different culture bearers um, about food. And wow. So look very for cool. look for articles about our particular foodways. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, hey, we'll do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We uh, have our raffle uh, event happening where we will spin the magic wheel whose name I've forgotten. The name <laughs> wheel. Here we go. The name wheel. Here it goes. Big bucks, no whammies. Who's the winner? Who's the winner? Who do we have? <gasps> Paul Lindholm. I know Paul. Hi, Paul. Way to go, Paul. You won. 